add a bit of sunshine to your home with Easy Living Furniture's Garden Furniture Sale with stunning dining sets, cracking egg chairs and relaxing sun loungers that are in stock and ready for delivery there really is something for everyone and with an extra 10% off sale prices and free delivery over 399 now really is the time to let your garden shine Garden Sale now on Visit Easy Living Furniture Don't miss out Find your local store online at easylivingfurniture.ie Leia Healthcare Looking after you always Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, irritable bowel syndrome is a bit of a taboo subject, but it's so important. It's estimated to affect one in 10 people in Ireland. It impacts two and a half times more women than men and can have huge repercussions on a person's sex life, relationship, work, social activities, and lots, lots more. But don't worry, it doesn't have to be that way. Today, I'm joined by Professor Barbara Ryan and registered dietitian Elaine McGowan, aka the Gut Experts, to talk all things IBS and gut health. Folks, welcome to today's show. How's it going? Great. Thanks, Carl. Thanks a million for having us on. Yes, we're delighted to have you. So Barbara, I'm going to start with yourself, if that's okay. What is IBS? Let's start right at the heart of it. Tell me more. Great. Thanks. Yeah, Carl, IBS, as you mentioned, is a really common condition and it's a chronic, frustrating condition that affects about one in 10 adults, as you said. Obviously, as the name suggests, it affects the bowel and the key symptoms of it are abdominal pain, recurrent crampy abdominal pain associated with either a change in the bowel pattern. So people are either going too much with diarrhea or too little with constipation and sometimes fluctuating between the two. And then some people as well can have a change in the appearance of their bowel motions, all kind of really embarrassing, nasty things to talk about. Um, And apart from those things, people can also very commonly complain of bloating. So that's actually, even though it's not one of the key, the kind of cardinal symptoms, it is one of the most problematic things that people will describe and complain of. And certainly many women that we would see would say, oh God, by the end of the day, I look six months pregnant. And that sort of bloating and distension can also be really uncomfortable. And then there are other sort of things as well, like, you know, passing too much wind or things like that. Really, really embarrassing things, but really common we don't want people to be embarrassed about talking about them because there are a lot that can be done to help. Okay. So mm-hmm. I suppose our society generally, we have, we're, we're afraid to talk about stuff like this. Yeah. Uh, all it's every year in operation transformation, Eva brings up the Bristol stool chart and the whole kind of studio takes a deep <laughs> yeah. breath and, you know, doesn't know where to look. Yeah. So let's, let's keep talking about these things because it okay. is really important to talk about it. Um, yeah. In terms of diagnosing it. So, you know, you've mentioned a few things there, lots of mm. people listening and will think, okay, well, look, I have excessive wind or mm. my stools change in terms of their consistency or whatever. Yeah. How do you actually diagnose it? So that absolutely. So these these symptoms are very common. And the really sort of frustrating thing about IBS is that there is no one test for it. So people will undergo some investigations and they will all be normal. And in fact, that is sort of, again, a cardinal sign of IBS. Tests don't show this up. So we diagnose it then on on the basis of the symptoms, all those symptoms I already mentioned to do with the bowel pattern. And then we also need to kind of rule out other common conditions that can that can cause sim- similar symptoms, such as celiac disease, which is really common, affects one in 80 to 100 Irish people. Um, something like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, which again affects, you know, it, it's, a, it's less common than IBS, but again, affects a significant number of people. So to diagnose IBS, we need to reasonably exclude all those other conditions um, that need specific treatment. 
And then on the basis of somebody's symptoms, we can say, yes, look, we're, we're sure you don't have X, Y, and Z. Your symptoms are entirely compatible with IBS. We're happy that that's what the diagnosis is. Um, but it's really important to get a proper diagnosis at the beginning and don't self-diagnose. I mean, I've certainly seen people over the years, and as would many of my colleagues who, who maybe have sort of been presuming that they've IBS for years because, yes, the, the symptoms are suggestive of that. But in fact, they've turned out to have maybe mild Crohn's disease. Or, or celiac, something that requires a very different treatment. So we'd be very much encouraging people not to self-diagnose um, and to go along and make an appointment with their GP to have some, some, some test done. And then the GP might decide, you, you, look, you need some further tests, et cetera. Okay. So from just listening to you there, diagnosis takes time, presumably. So it's not a matter of flicking through Instagram, seeing an influencer posting about IBS and saying, oh, I have that. And therefore I'm going <laughs> to follow whatever. It does take time and it is important yeah. to seek professional help. Absolutely. And look, we're not trying, every doctor's busy. We're not trying to, you know, drum up business for ourselves or for doctors. It's just very important that you set out on the right path to start with. And that because if you have celiac, obviously you need to be on a gluten-free diet. And if that's undiagnosed, that can lead to problems with osteoporosis, et cetera. So yeah, get a right, get the doc, try and get the diagnosis right at the start. And then you're on the right path to treatment. And one more question for yourself, and then I'm going to go over to Elaine with regards mm -hmm. to food. Why is it so prevalent in women as opposed to men? Do we know why that is? That is the million dollar question, Carl. Um, I mean, there probably are some a number of reasons. Um, one thing we do know, many women with IBS will, will tell, tell us that their symptoms fluctuate with their menstrual cycle. So we know that our bowel has got millions and millions of estrogen receptors on it. And our bowel, even for somebody who doesn't suffer with IBS, they will find a change in their bowel pattern. A woman I'm talking about, obviously, over the course of, of the month with her menstrual cycle. And those changes are really kind of pronounced in somebody with who has IBS. So certainly hormones play an important role. There may be genetic things that we haven't yet identified. Diet might also play a role. Um, women probably, I'm grossly generalizing, I'm sure you're not like you're really healthy diet, but a lot of women might tend to eat more carbohydrates maybe and more uh, fruits and vegetables than men. Uh, this is a gross generalization, but probably eat more things that may cause some of, some of these, bring on these types of symptoms, whereas men may eat a more protein-rich diet in um, in general, but certainly hormones, genetics um, play a role, and maybe diet, and maybe maybe stress also. We our bodies react differently to stress, perhaps as well. But it's a fascinating area of ongoing research, and we'll we'll come back in a few years, and we've got you know when there are more answers. But yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, and you mentioned food there, so it's a perfect time to bring Elaine into this conversation. So Elaine, let's chat all things diet and IBS and gut health. Huge area, very topical at the minute. Everyone's talking about it. It's important to get that qualified advice. We have you guys on, to, on you know, the show today for that reason. Tell me all about diet and IBS to start with. So certainly diet plays a huge role in IBS symptoms. And there's no doubt about it that there are several foods that can actually trigger IBS symptoms. But often, Carl, it's actually the quantities of these foods that you eat in your diet. So there's very simple dietary measures and lifestyle changes that we can look at first that can be very effective in managing your symptoms. So there'd be very much a first line approach for people that we'd recommend. And that would be looking at uh, three key things. One would be their eating pattern. Secondly, their fluid intake. And thirdly, um, the type of foods that they're eating. So firstly, if we look at the eating pattern, I think a lot of us can eat irregularly. We can skip meals. We often eat too quickly. We can often eat on the run. So it's very important to look at how you're actually eating. Then looking at your 
fluids. So are you taking a large amount of coffee, too much caffeine? Some of us at home on Zoom are taking too much caffeine during the day, a large amount of carbonated drinks, fizzy drinks, looking at alcohol intake. Some of us have increased our alcohol intake take in the last year. Types of alcohols can be trigger, triggering for IBS symptoms. And then thirdly, to look at certain types of foods. So the ones that are most obvious are the convenience type foods, the more processed foods, the ready meals. These can actually be irritants to the gut. So all of these factors collectively can trigger some IBS type symptoms, but also along with other, other lifestyle factors such as actually stress and such as sleep. So collectively, all of these need to be looked at in a, in a holistic manner. And what we'd recommend people to do as a very much a first line approach is actually just to start a food and lifestyle diary. Start writing down what you're eating, when you're eating, looking at your lifestyle, looking at your sleep pattern, your exercise pattern, and for women, their menstrual cycle over the month. And certainly this can be a very simple thing to do. It's a very simple tool, but it's very effective in trying to just identify some of the areas that might be triggering some of your IBS symptoms. Okay, and what about the speed at which we eat? Is that as important as I've read to believe in terms of the amount of work, you know, spending 30 seconds chewing your food and the more work that you do here, the less work your stomach has to do. Is that important in terms of good health? Yes. So I think it's really important in terms of gut health. Certainly all of a lot of our digestive enzymes are actually in our mouth. So it's important that the digestion process actually starts there. So we need to chew well. And sometimes if we eat very quickly or on the run, we can actually swallow quite a large amount of air leading to aerophagia, which can actually cause abdominal bloating as well, particularly when we're eating so fast and so quickly. So I think that's also there's several components to that. So eating certainly slowly and chewing your food well is very important to reduce your symptoms. And presumably one of the reasons for having a food diary is trying to identify certain foods that may trigger, you know, being uncomfortable in terms of bowel movement or in terms of of wind, that for certain people, certain foods can trigger those symptoms. Yes. So actually, there's many dietary components that um, play a key role in triggering those IBS symptoms, which can be really uncomfortable and painful for people. But there's actually just three key ones that we tend to focus on initially. And they would be firstly fiber, which we're all familiar with. And some people, while fiber is very good for you, there can be some foods that have fermentable fibers that can cause gut symptoms. And secondly, we have these foods called fructans, which are largely wheat based foods, not exclusively but all the breads, the rice, the pastas and the potatoes and some vegetables such as onion and garlic. And these can be, if taken in large quantities, quite problematic for patients with IBS. And thirdly, if we look at fructose, fructose is actually a fruit sugar, which is really good and healthy, but certain foods can be high in fructose. And if we take large quantities, it can trigger symptoms. So for people that have IBS, as Barbara's mentioned, they can have a more sensitive gut system and the gut-brain axis can be more tightly wired. they consume some of these foods, some of them may be undigested and they go down that 30 foot um, gut down to the colon. And some of these undigested products can be fermented by the bacteria and that produces bloating, wind, and it can lead to crampy pain, diarrhea and constipation. So it's quite important that you would actually navigate that space with and distill it with a registered dietitian. Um, And certainly we could look at those food components a little bit closer if you wanted to, Carl, as to how they would trigger the symptoms. 
I'm, I'm intrigued about the, the clean eating movement and its relationship with IBS because clean eating, again, I'm putting it back to social media because that's where so many people get their their content, their advice in terms of what they see mm. and the mm-hmm. whole element of clean eating. And, you know, you're saying that it's not good for IBS and IBS related symptoms. Well, certainly clean eating. Most people start off with the clean eating regime, just trying to eat healthier for health reasons and believing that they're embracing something that's very positive. And certainly we do we do recommend eating certainly healthy, a Mediterranean style diet with certainly lots of fiber, lots of variety and lots of color in fruits, vegetables, salads, nuts and seeds. And certainly we recommend lots of oily fish, um, lots of healthy oils, some poultry, uh, some dairy products, small amount of red meat and some legumes, but legumes can be a little bit problematic for IBS patients. So the the challenge with the clean eating is it starts off with very good intentions. But what happens is it can actually progress sometimes under the from the influence of social media to basically unnecessarily dietary exclusions and restrictions, such as taking wheat and dairy out of the diet, and then also maybe eliminating uh, foods such as um, meat from the diet. And these may be unnecessarily eliminated from the diet. There's a couple of downsides to this. So if I could list just three of them, one is that if we remove wheat from the diet, wheat is an important component to feed our healthy bacteria. So basically, when we remove wheat from the diet, we can reduce some of the food for our healthy bacteria. Secondly, it can lead to some nutritional deficiencies in the long term, such as people removing dairy from their diet. It can lead often to thinning of the bones, osteoporosis, um, osteopenia and osteoporosis later on in life. And then thirdly, this level of clean eating, if taken to extreme limits, really cause disordered eating, which may need to be looked at closer with the psychologists. And from Barbara and ours point of view, we are actually seeing people embracing too healthy diets. Their fiber intake may be too high. Their fructose intake may be too high. So while we may demonize wheat or gluten, not one size fits all. And we could be looking in the wrong direction for people. It may actually be fructose that is triggering them. So we really need to look really in, with a register work with a registered dietitian to try to identify your dietary triggers and navigate this space in a safer way where why you can manage your symptoms while still having a very healthy diet. You're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Let's chat one more question before I go back to Barbara for a second, and that is fibre. Mm. Uh, really popular. We've had the likes of the happy pears on before saying people have to eat more fibre in their diets and get lots more fibre in. How much fibre should people be taking? Where do they get it from? And, you know, how do they know if they're having too much? So fiber basically is nature's superfood. It's fantastic for the gut. It feeds our healthy gut bacteria. It helps gut motility. And also it's really important in preventing diseases such as diabetes, obesity and and various cancers. So we recommend between 20 and 35 grams of fiber a day. So 20 grams of fiber a day is really a bowl of whole grain cereal. It's two slices of wholemeal bread. It's two portions of vegetables, one portion of salad, and basically two to three portions of fruit. Now, that's quite a lot to achieve in one day for anybody. In w- that, that whole lot in one day? Yeah. So that's wow. your 20 grams of fiber. And you know that 80% of Irish people actually don't eat enough fiber. So that's our starting point. So many of Barbara's and Irish patients, they don't have enough fiber and they could be constipated and maybe they don't have enough movement in their bowels. So they need to increase the fiber intake and they need to start with the 20 grams a day which is 
tough enough. And then we go to the other end of the, the recommendation, which is about 35 grams of fiber a day. And Barbara and I see every day in our clinic people that are actually consuming too much fiber. Some people may come in taking 55 grams of fiber a day, and that's causing bloating and wind and extra bowel motions, more bowel frequency during the day. Um, so they may be taking too much fiber. So it's very much about finding the right amount of fiber for you to minimize your symptoms with IBS. So too much can be a problem and too little can be a problem. Also with fiber, it's very important that if we're increasing it, we increase it gradually by about five grams a week, which is really an extra portion of vegetables, one slice of whole grain bread in a day. And we need to take a lot of water when we're taking our fiber intake. So the two Fs is fiber and fluid together. Otherwise we end up getting a traffic jam of fiber in the gut and it can't move through. So we need to put the water in there to, you know, allow a bit of irrigation through the bowel. And um, I would say I think a nap is the best way to, to, to see whether you're taking enough fiber. So to know whether a food, if, if it's a good fiber content, it'll have more than three grams of fiber per hundred grams. A food that is six grams of fiber per hundred grams is high fiber. But this can be a little bit misleading because a plate of vegetables may only have two grams of fiber, but you may eat a plate of salad as well. So and you could eat a smaller amount of a whole grain cereal as well that could give you maybe just six grams of fiber. So I think the best way to, to me measure it is with an app to to um, look at your total fiber intake in the day. OK, fantastic. Oh, could I just jump in there for one second? Because I know that people are getting you know quite different messages, maybe from different sources. And, you, you know, somebody else will say, no, no, you should be eating 50 grams of fiber a day. And I think we're talking about people who have got problems. And I suppose that says that is a difference. Some people can eat whatever they want. You know, they know they're really either incredibly healthy or incredibly unhealthy and seem to have bowels and, and guts of steel. Mm. We're really talking about people who have got gut problems and how best to manage those problems. And when you have IBS, the amount of fiber you eat is very important. If you don't have IBS, you might be able to eat 50 grams of fiber a day. And that's fantastically healthy in many other ways but it just does put an extra strain on the gut of people with IBS. And I suppose that's really, that's really a point of distinction, maybe from mm. some other sources of messaging that people are getting. And Barbara, while we're here, let's chat. There's two key things I want to chat about. One is uh, the gut brain axis. Let's chat yeah. more about that for a second. So again, yeah. it's getting a lot of traction. People are getting more aware of the relationship between your brain and your tummy. It is important. And again, science is revealing more and more mm. kind of content all the time about the yeah. importance of, lifestyle factors on the gut such as stress and sleep and workload yeah. and all of all of those things so it is a really important thing to be aware of oh absolutely and and in a way this isn't a new thing i mean like if we look at some eastern cultures like japanese culture they call they call the gut hara which means center of spiritual well-being um you know we kind of moved away from that and i think we're moving i think medicine in general is moving back towards a more holistic approach and yeah you mentioned that the gut brain axis which is this incredibly interesting in complex connection that we're that we're you know that has been discovered between the brain and the gut and basically what, what we're finding is that obviously what's going on in our brain has a huge effect on what's going on in our gut so if we're stressed we get up we get hypersensitivity in our guts where our pain receptors are firing like mad feeling every little thing every crap every little contraction every little bit of bloating so stress affects our bowel but also what's going on in our bowel also affects our brain so you know there's some really fascinating research also showing how different uh, the microbiome although the, the gut bacteria of people for example with anxiety and depression 
differs from those of people who have who have normal mood. So there's this really complex connection of, of nerves, the immune system of the gut and the brain connected, and also our hormonal systems are, are connected as well. So, so absolutely, when you look, when you have whether you have a gut problem or whether you don't have a gut problem, it's really important to look after mental health as well to keep a, to keep you know all parts of our body healthy, particularly the gut. So as you say. When you have a in managing these conditions, you do need to have a, a, a sort of a, a multi-pronged approach and a holistic approach. So if you've a gut problem, you absolutely need to look after your mental health. You need to try to find ways to help you de-stress, if be that mindfulness, be it Pilates, be it hypnotherapy, whatever it is that helps you, be it a walk in the park. All of those things are really important. Um, so too are other kind of holistic things that are good for us. Obviously, down your up your alley, you know, exercise is incredibly important for mental health and for gut health um, and in fact it's been shown that people with IBS that they they benefit from an actual structured exercise program so exercising for 20 to 30 minutes five times a week it doesn't have to be high octane um reg, you know a, a, a brisk walk etc but five times a week has been shown to improve the symptoms of IBS and as you mentioned also sleep we all know also is like nature's healer we all we all need to be getting uh, adequate sleep which we're probably not um yeah so and the second thing i want to chat to you about is pre and probiotics again very mm. trendy very topical yeah. uh for for good health in general not just purely ibs yeah there's a lot of marketing there's a lot of products around are they important should people be taking them and uh what's your general take on them so this may be weird for a doctor to say but uh, you know i think we need to do things as naturally as possible if you can manage without tablets fantastic you know all of the so i think Fiber is nature's prebiotic. Prebiotic essentially is is fiber. It's things that are fermented in the gut and broken down and act as a food substrate for substrate for gut bacteria. So I personally don't think you need to be buying prebiotic supplements, um, except in perhaps exceptional circumstances if you're for in certain cases. But generally, fiber and fermented foods, etc., they are natural prebiotics. Probiotics, obviously, as you said, very big business. Um, it's actually, I find it very confusing myself. There are so many different combinations of bacteria, uh, you know, of, of bacterial strains in the probiotics. And um, some of them have a single strain. Some of them have multi-strain. They differ in their colony counts, etc. So it is, it, it's quite a minefield out there. And really the evidence to support probiotics in general is quite weak. Um, for IBS, um, we know that about one in seven people only gets a benefit with a probiotic. Um, and if you are going to try one, however, I would suggest that you use a multi-strain one. And the current guidelines of the British Society would suggest uh, that you try one for a month um, and see if you're feeling any better. That's for gut symptoms. Obviously, they are, there are many different strains being, being advertised and promoted for many different things. And it is a fascinating area, and I think we're it's an it's an area that's under evolution, um, and we do know that certain bacteria seem to bacterial strains seem to improve uh, sleep. Certain other ones may be associated with improved mood, etc. Um, so I think there are interesting areas there at the moment, and I think maybe down the line we'll be in a place in in five years, ten years, where we say, okay, you've got depression, you take this probiotic for three months, and that's you know, or you've IBS, you take this, but it's a little bit confusing at the moment, and I think we're not quite there yet. So my own personal take is I generally don't recommend probiotics routinely. And if I, if somebody is very keen to try one, or I would recommend that someone tries one for a month. 
and see. Okay, so give it time and, and see yeah. if there's a difference. Okay, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Elaine, I'm going to come back over to you. So it's kind of top tips time now. I get to pick the brains of all the people that we have on. In terms of gut health, and again, for those maybe with IBS and who just want to improve their gut health, what are your top three takeaways that you'd like people to take away from today's episode? So my first one would be really to, we are advocates of inclusive diets, not exclusive diets. So we really do not recommend cutting whole food groups out of your diet, such as wheat or dairy, unnecessarily, unless there's a medical reason for it. The second one would be for people to start tracking. So I think food and uh, lifestyle diaries, start tracking what you eat, when you eat, looking at your exercise and stress levels. Also for women uh, documenting their hormonal cycle. And I think this is a really simple tool, but it can be very effective in helping you pinpoint areas that might need improvement. And then thirdly, really, if you've problematic IBS symptoms, you need to navigate the space with a registered dietitian who specializes in gut health. And they will really help you navigate the diet to identify your dietary triggers and then also help you actually find a way to minimize those symptoms and management with long-term strategies. And also, Carl, we actually want people to be able to enjoy food and find a way to navigate it while not triggering their IBS because food is such a sociable thing and it's an important part of everybody's everybody's life okay fantastic and barbara i'm going to ask you the very same question give me your top three takeaways you want people to take away from today's show okay yeah sure i think my top one is don't self-diagnose and don't use dr google it's incredibly helpful but look make an appointment with your gp get some basic tests done as i said to rule out those other conditions that can mimic ibs that'd be my first one my second one would be don't be embarrassed to discuss these symptoms. I mean, they are quite embarrassing um, and people can often be reluctant, but you know, your GP uh, or a specialist, they've heard all of these symptoms before and there's absolutely nothing to be embarrassed about. And thirdly, I really would like people to to, to be hopeful. Um, there are an awful lot of things that can be done to help uh, to help symptoms. And usually a combination of diet that Elaine has spoken about, lifestyle factors, and certain medications also can be extremely helpful. So, so you know, be optimistic, go and try and seek some help. And really, there's generally an awful lot that can be done to help this, you know, this very unpleasant condition. Okay, fantastic. Professor Barbara Ryan and Dietitian Elaine McGowan, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Folks, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any questions, you know where we are, realhealthandindependent.ie, at PT on Twitter and on Instagram. You can find The Good Experts on Instagram, at The Good Experts, and the website is thegoodexperts.com. As ever, we'll see you next week for more Real Health. Slán go Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.